Hi, I'm Kevin K. Shaw. This is Play Years. Thanks for listening. Going back in time dilates your pupils, so when you first step outside, the first thing you see is a bright glow from the sun reflecting off the water. And the first thing you smell is coffee, as it's unloaded from the ship on a dock nearby. It's cargo imported by the Dutch East India Company, while their other 150 ships sail the oceans with Chinese porcelain, wool from the Baltics, Persian rugs, sugar from Brazil, fruit from the West Indies, and also weapons and slaves as needed for their more nefarious activities around the world. But here in the Netherlands, they even imported tulips from Turkish sultans, which were so mind-bending and popular that the Dutch grew obsessed. The price shot up, way up, and it almost caused a riot. There still exists a receipt for someone that traded their mansion for a single bulb. That's how prosperous this time was, and how big the bubble that would eventually pop. We have arrived here just before that high watermark of trade, science, and art, and of course military might for the Dutch. Admired by all of Europe at the time, the era would eventually become known as the Dutch Golden Age by historians, but those living in golden ages never really know how rapidly it can come to an end. Like an asteroid headed for Earth. You can see it, but you can't do anything about it. Except work to prepare, if you believe it can happen. But right now, in 1655, there was still at least 25 odd years left of that golden age before the metaphorical asteroid of no money left in the treasury to pay the government bonds struck and bankrupted the entire republic. For now though, the atmosphere here is vibrant with culture and discovery, so let's stay focused on that while we're here. The sun is setting, and we pass by Rembrandt, busy putting himself into yet another painting, and we follow one particular lesser-known painter at the time. We know he's a painter because we can see it on his hands and his clothes. He's a bit disheveled, but trying to keep it together. He's not very wealthy, but talented. And having just finished his last painting, a religious masterpiece that took him years, he was already at it again. He lights a candle to work, and by its flickering light, he intends to work a few more hours on this new idea. It will not be religious like his last, and it won't be epic. It will depict simple, mundane life. He takes a look at the brand new white canvas and takes a moment to imagine what it'll look like in the final moments before its completion, years from now. While looking at black screens in front of him, they probably imagined what the final moments are going to look like when this phase of the space mission achieves a successful completion. And there was no way of knowing for sure if this part of the entire plan was even going to be successful. But they had confidence in their colleagues and each other, and trust in the math that brought them this far. Trajectory was on target, and just about everything but nerves were nominal, as their work was also being live-streamed to the world while it was happening. So perhaps with all those eyes on NASA, it must have been somewhat comforting knowing that it was all pretty much out of their hands now, and that for this last leg, the spacecraft they had launched over a year ago was now guiding itself. As far as guiding itself correctly, well, they would find out soon either way, as that blob on the screen grew larger and more defined. Some stood, some sat, staring at those monitors like they had done so many times before, but today was definitely different. 
Today, that blob they had been watching morphed into two blobs that were growing rapidly. The bigger blob was actually an asteroid hurtling through space that was about two and a half Eiffel Towers wide, called Didymos. The droplet next to it was a baby moon of the asteroid, about the size of the Pyramid of Giza, but small and lucky enough to have found a parent for an eternal cosmic dance. This small moon is known as Dimorphos, and finally seeing it made all those tired eyes at NASA light up as a picture a second kept rolling in from space. Although he was young, this new painting would take him years to complete. And like nearly everything else, it's impossible to calculate how long a piece of art is going to take you when you're just getting started. This new painting would in fact for Johannes Vermeer turn into a painting within a painting. Though few art critics focus on what's in the background when what's in the foreground is so striking. The painting would eventually be called Officer and a Laughing Girl and would someday be priceless, but only long after his death. There is a red-coated officer with a black hat seated at a table with his back towards us, looking at a rigid and petite young maiden, also seated, that seems to be giving him a friendly, patient smile. She is clutching a glass with a drink of some sort in her hands, and she has a white bonnet wrapped tightly around her head. In the finished painting, we can't see the officer's face, but she appears to be, through the aged and cracked oil paint, smiling out of obligation, or perhaps because she's nice. It feels to me like she's ultimately just tolerating his looming unwanted presence until he leaves. Now ignore for a moment all that masterwork, and you will notice behind them on the wall, there's a very large and detailed map of the provinces of Holland. So accurate, in fact, that it's been identified as an exact duplicate of a very accurate map that was circulating in the Netherlands around 1620, which a young Johannes Vermeer must have seen and studied, or at least gotten his hands on long enough to memorize. Maybe he got it from that same highly respected scientific circle that a slightly older up-and-coming mathematician was a part of. This particular mathematician whom Vermeer likely did not know would have probably looked at the map with only mild interest as his attention was focused elsewhere. Unlike Vermeer, who was discovering and depicting each detail of the map for his painting, this mathematician would rather map something much larger than Europe or even the world as he sat there hand-grinding circular pieces of glass glass that he would eventually install as a lens into a telescope he built to get better magnification for the science masterpiece he was embarking on at the same time as Vermeer. The young mathematician was also an astronomer, and he had already made a name for himself discovering the southern pole of Mars through earlier telescopes. But now, as we enter his home, much nicer than Vermeer's, we see Christian Huygens is looking far into the depths of the unknown as possible. Now, I'm not going to be able to say his name like that each time, so I'm just going to say Christian Huygens. Anyway, he's not as talented as Vermeer in the arts, but from his sketches, we can see he's trying to look past Jupiter and peer at the rings of Saturn. Christian Huygens was obsessed, really, by Saturn's rings. Just as we all are at some point in our lives when we learn about that planet and see a first image of its magic. Oh my goodness, look at that, said a NASA mission systems engineer. But it could have been anyone in the room. This was all something imagined by everyone a million different ways. But here it was finally happening. And the two blobs on the monitors continued to grow, one still larger than the other. Like bacteria colonies on a petri dish, or tumors in dark tissue. 
but this growth was an illusion, and everyone knew it. These blobs in space were not getting bigger, but closer. And these monitors were connected to a camera on a spacecraft, now guiding itself, millions of miles away, at 14,000 miles an hour, toward the end of a $330 million mission. This was a dream project of discovery called DART, which stands for Double Asteroid Redirection Test. But this was also a suicide mission, and everyone knew it. Everyone was okay with it. This was the most important part of the entire plan. And now that it was late September 2022, it was finally time. Before he turned in for the night, he just wanted to get a better look at those rings of Saturn. He couldn't stop thinking about them, night and day. And he knew how he could get a better look, as he was an engineer and inventor, as well as an astronomer and mathematician. His new lenses were now polished and installed on the new telescope he built, primitive by our standards now, but back then it was quite magical. And tonight, a very clear night, Saturn is bright above him in the sky, easily visible to the naked eye as a bright fat dot. He sets up his telescope carefully. Under that same view, just a 30 minute ride by carriage away, Vermeer was carefully setting up his palette again to paint a laughing girl. But Christian Huygen, when finally peering deep into space that night, he actually saw something else, quite unexpected. And his findings would quickly stir up the entire science community, the kind of effect that Vermeer's paintings wouldn't have on the art community until long after his death. Huygen saw through the telescope that night a fuzzy new blob hovering there near those rings of Saturn, not part of the ring, outside it. The blob, of course, was one of Saturn's 82 moons, but he had no idea of that crazy number as he could not see all of them with his telescope. But all the way back then, at age 26, it must have been quite wondrous to try and get a better look at all those magical rings and instead, wow, what do you know? find another moon in our cosmos, larger than our own. Okay, let's pause to talk about Christian Huygen for precisely 73 seconds. Huygen was also a physicist, and although forgotten by most, he was one of the greatest scientists of all time. Regarding time, Huygen would invent the pendulum clock, which pretty much created accurate timekeeping for humanity for the next 300 years. He even made it easier when he invented the pocket watch. He was also the first to theorize a problem and then analyze its parameters mathematically, that is to say, to use his imagination, but scientifically. And he used it, like Einstein, for even what was called unobservable phenomenon at the time. So Huygen was also the first theoretical physicist, too. In his downtime, he studied light, because he had downtime and light must have been worth thinking about. And through the supercomputer of his mind, he proposed a wacky idea which became known as the Huygens Principle. Bear with me. The wavefront of light is formed by the sum of spherical wavelets, and every point on a wavefront is a source of spherical wavelets that expand out at the speed of light in a forward direction. Right? Jeez, there goes Huygen and his wacky ideas. It's over 350 years ago, and here's Huygen realizing that light acts and moves through space like a wave. So yeah, important fella. 73 seconds. Just like his contemporary Johannes Vermeer, painting away in obscurity while perhaps imagining a future work about a girl with a pearl earring, for Huygen, who wasn't an artist, the canvas was the cosmos itself. 
his brush the telescope, his paints mathematics, and for both the imaginative process in these beginning phases was one of exciting new discovery. For Christian Huygen, that night in the spring of 1655, he had discovered the largest moon of Saturn, an alien world bigger than Mercury that, like Earth, has clouds and an atmosphere. That giant moon of Saturn discovered into existence would eventually be known as Titan. Seeing all of the excitement as the spacecraft got closer to the asteroid's moon, you couldn't help but think about that one particular person that wasn't in the room watching the blobs grow, but should have been, at least from his home in Italy. His name was Andrea Milani, and back in 2005, when Facebook and MySpace were, for better or worse, launching to high school students, a very forward-thinking U.S. congressional mandate pushed for an expansion of our understanding of asteroids in order to protect humanity from future impact. Their goal was to map 90% of near-Earth asteroids with diameters of 140 meters or greater, which is about the size of three Leaning Towers of Pisa stacked. The project was called Defending Planet Earth. Not by coincidence, that same year, Milani had put together a paper, an idea he imagined. It was a crazy idea, but something where success could be in the realm of possibility. It was a proposal, but with solid science and mathematics, about a hypothetical scenario whereby humanity would do a test run and actually impact an asteroid with an object and then study it. The title of the paper and the project was a play on Don Quixote, but Milani was serious and once everyone had a look, they all got serious too. Born in Florence, he studied in Milan and worked on solar system dynamics in the 70s. By the time he was a professor in Pisa, he was heavily involved in several space missions and a highly respected expert in celestial mechanics worldwide. That year, when he put imagination to paper, he must have also been inspired by just about everything else that was happening in astronomy and space in 2005. For instance, that January, a spacecraft named Deep Impact was launched from Cape Canaveral with the purpose of studying a comet. But probably what must have been one of the most inspiring space events for Milani as it was for so many, was when that same month, the Cassini spacecraft orbiting Saturn released a robotic space probe to land on a moon. The probe was named after a mathematician astronomer we know, and the Huygens space probe would successfully descend toward the moon Titan, fall through the clouds in Titan's atmosphere, and using a parachute, land successfully on an alien shoreline by a sea of methane. The probe was designed to float for a bit if it landed in a lake, river, or sea. But because of an error in radio transmission, we lost one of the probe's two critical channels for getting us the data we wanted. Still, using redundancies, the Huygen generated and sent back to us over 300 fascinating images of Titan for a solid 90 minutes, before it likely floated off, quietly sunk, and went dead. A spacecraft launched by humanity, named for the man that discovered Titan, lands on the moon he saw that night in the Netherlands, and launched the same year as Milani pioneers an idea on how we protect ourselves from an asteroid on a collision course with Earth, an idea that would catch hold, and by 2017, building directly on Milani's work, an international collaboration called the Hera mission was proposed. The idea was to smash an object into an asteroid and study the impact with another satellite when the dust clears. 
he may have celebrated with a nice Italian dish and a toast with friends and family when he found out. The mission, his dream child, was, after all, created for the benefit of humanity. And the purpose of his life's work was literally to save the Earth. Milani passed away a year later, quite unexpectedly by everyone's account, and although, like Vermeer, he couldn't be here to witness its success in this lifetime, the first phase of the mission he set into motion continued on the trajectory he laid forth. They called it DART. Back on Earth, in the present, it was around 3 o'clock in a warm, early fall afternoon in California, and as good a day as any for a suicide mission in space. I was dropping my kids off at soccer when I glanced at the time and by chance I remembered reading Monday 3.17pm PST in an article about the DART collision. I knew it was going to happen, but I hadn't planned on actually watching it. Although once the kids started practicing on the field, I quickly searched on my phone for asteroid collision, and in a couple of seconds I had the live link on my phone screen too. I moved to the shade of a tree to better see what was happening 7 million miles away. At around 3.15, I called my son over to show him what was happening too. His sister was still in the soccer field playing. He came over to see what I was looking at. He didn't quite understand, but I think my excitement in pointing at the blobs got him excited. Soon our nanny arrived and joined us in watching what was happening on the screen of my phone. My son's head kept blocking the view as he tugged on my arm to pull the phone towards him. Finally, the asteroid became clearer and larger and passed by and out of frame as we continued toward the asteroid's moon, which really looks like an egg-shaped stone in space. We'd said a few wows to each other as we got closer to the target, and we appeared to be moving faster near the end. Everything happened very fast in the last moments. Suddenly the smaller stones that could be made out on the surface just moments before impact grew into what looked like huge boulders, and then smash. The feed cut out in a half frame, and we heard NASA cheer. And so my son and his nanny and I cheered and clapped too, like no one was watching. Because no one really was. After that, my phone was back in my pocket, and I waved bye to my son as our nanny took over. He asked me if I could stay longer, but I already stayed longer than I expected, and I had to get back to work for a call. I waved bye again. Soccer continued as I drove back to work. Andrea was always passionate about his work, ahead of the European Space Agency, once said of Milani. But to me, the word work doesn't quite feel accurate. Can't really compare what he was doing to someone just as passionate about flipping a burger before that job becomes automated. So maybe the word purpose here instead of work, or maybe they should be one and the same in meaning, at least in this context. Andrea was always passionate about his purpose. Years later, the community would honor Milani by naming an asteroid in the main belt between Jupiter and Mars that Huygen looked past when through the eyes of humanity he witnessed Titan into existence. 4701 Milani is an asteroid, a large rock that orbits the sun like Earth, and will bear his name for essentially our understanding of eternity. On the drive back from the soccer field, having waved bye to my son, who would have rather had me stay and watch him play, I couldn't help but wonder if crashing this man-made object into something in the cosmos maybe changed all of the universe in a grand butterfly effect that somehow finally alerted the cosmos that humanity exists and should continue doing so. Or, what if after all the observations are done, 
What if the spacecraft hit the moon and it did, statistically speaking, nothing? What if the impact made no effective difference, except create a quiet spark in space, and also for a brief moment in a child's eye? Is this how the researchers at NASA, putting in long hours near the end of this phase of the mission, felt? Did Vermeer feel this, going back to his paintings which would only receive lackluster attention while he was alive, while he had 11 children to tend to? Or what about Christian Huygen, whose work was considered more important by societal standards than Vermeer, but he too had 11 surviving children? Were they patient with him as he tinkered in his workshop and ultimately changed the world? Or were they just disappointed in their dad? that could look at something out there in space but miss what was happening right here? Was it even worth showing my son the collision and what mankind is trying to do for the future of humanity when it also means only his nanny got to witness his goal later that afternoon because his dad had to return to work? And even if we did knock it way off course, is it enough that one day in the future the moon might veer off into space and be okay to leave the orbit of his dad to figure out the cosmos all on his own? Does any of it even matter? Was it even worth spending millions of dollars to travel millions of miles to beam back to millions of people? Images perhaps no more significant than the pebble under my shoe that shook, but rocked right back into place as I stepped on it and walked away from the soccer field? There's no way of knowing for sure how close or how far all those asteroids out there are from hitting us. So I couldn't help but wonder what makes this mission a success and if that can only be determined by time, or if the mission can only reveal a slice of information that we'll ultimately find out really isn't relevant to anything else in the cosmos anyway. It really would be something if the math and endless calculations and observations after this impact might lead to some future revelation on how we deflect an asteroid headed towards us rather than we toward it. And what if after all this work, that moon did budge but not enough, past a threshold of what is considered a change. Does this mean we are destined to try this again and again? As far as science was concerned, changing the duration of the orbit of the moon around its parent by more than 73 seconds would be considered successful. The time it took for me to introduce you to Christian Huygen was the benchmark here, the threshold of cosmic change. I would learn later that because, unexpectedly, Dimorphos sort of popped like a balloon, and spewed ejecta into space for thousands of miles, the impact sped up the orbit not by 73 seconds, but in fact by 32 minutes. So, because of the impact, the moon orbits its parent a bit closer, like a child more cautious after unexpectedly getting hit pretty hard by a ball on the field. For all those NASA engineers and personnel cheering in the room that day, and for us that were clapping for their work but weren't quite sure why, it really was a success, and one can't help but be left with the feeling that just because we can launch an object off this planet and smash it into a rock flying in space, it feels like we should, and feels right to do so. But in this case, the work here, all those hours spent late at the office, missing dinner, or a particular event, or a child's milestone, or even just missing a simple soccer practice for the work they're supposed to do, for their purpose, was justified. Soon, a new Observer spacecraft for the second phase of the HERA mission will be on its way to study the impact we made on that moon. Humanity will get a close-up of the scar we left on the cosmos. 
because we're endlessly curious, we'll also get a chance to use high-resolution visual, laser, and radio science mapping, so we'll get a good look inside Demorphos too. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said, quote, This mission shows that NASA is trying to be ready for whatever the universe throws at us. Although we really did alter the grand simulation, so to speak, this is just a first step, an early goal in the first half of a very long game. This doesn't yet confirm humanity can do anything about the actual asteroid they will find, inevitably, that is on a collision course with Earth in some future time frame. And at that time, and hopefully before it, humanity will have to once again rely on forward thinkers to do the work, to stay a bit later, to marry a purpose to what they do, even if it means sacrificing time, and sometimes, not always, but sometimes saying goodbye to your kids from the sidelines with a guilty feeling. And even if the work of our lives ends up like Vermeer, or Milani, where we can't even be sure of the impact of our efforts until long after we're gone, or whether or not our efforts will be seen at all, Perhaps all those hours put into our work is similar to the hours we put into raising our kids, where all purposeful effort is probably worth it. So long as there's a balance, or at least a balance in the long run, no matter what the universe throws at us. If my work or your work doesn't change the entire cosmos with a bang, the only thing that is certain about this particular work is that if humanity doesn't give up, and if we just keep practicing out there in that vast field of space, then maybe one day it'll be as easy to save this golden age of humanity from certain doom as kicking a ball.